Hey everyone, welcome to episode 18 of the True Crime Couple Podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. And today's episode is going to be a little long, so we'll kind of get right into it. But quickly before we start, like we always do, we just want to thank everyone for all of their iTunes reviews. They've been so positive and so great. And you guys are fantastic. Yeah, we're glad we can spend all this time with you and you're commuting and um, you're doing your chores. So we appreciate all the feedback that you're giving us. Absolutely. Okay, so when you send your children to high school, you expect them to be inspired and guided towards the right path in life. I know this because I'm a high school teacher. In these formative years that people tend to reflect on for the rest of their lives is where personalities are shaped and characters are forged. And that's what we expect of our high school teachers, right? To be kind of role models for our children. But sometimes that isn't always the case. Sometimes those that are supposed to set societal examples are just as depraved and twisted as the monsters that they're supposed to be shielding our children from. That is the case here in what will become known as the mainline murders. A quiet English teacher, a mother of two, will end up wrapped in chains, found naked and dead in the trunk of her car, beaten and bruised. Her two children are never seen again. And the parties responsible for the murder will reveal a world of deception, betrayal, obsession, guns, drugs, pornography, and, like always, money. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil. In some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So our story starts with William Bradfield, who was a charismatic high school English teacher that led a very interesting and bizarre life. Known to everyone as Bill, he grew up in a well-to-do neighborhood in Pennsylvania, And that's where this whole story is going to take place in the state of Pennsylvania. His father was an executive for Western Electric, and Bradfield recalls that nothing was ever good enough for his perfectionist father. Therefore, he developed the same unforgiving and unrelenting personality. However, this was not a negatively seen trait in him as it was in his father, because he masked it with his personality and charm. And it's those qualities that are, at first, going to make him seem like an endearing person. And if anyone's ever listened to the podcast Dirty John, which is so good, John hasn't listened to it yet. I'm no, still I'm not. trying to get him to. <laughs> but it's really one of the best ways that this guy can kind of be described. Like he's just very convincing to the people that he needs to be convincing to. Bradfield's family had to move around a lot due to job transfers and promotions of his father. And before he entered college, he had attended about 13 different elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools. And this is pretty interesting because that's what we saw with um, DeBarta Laban. Yeah. Moving around, having to be able to kind of like mask yourself and put on a show. And it's interesting when you see the same like correlations between people that we cover on the podcast. Yeah, it's true. But I think that moving around makes him have to, like, have that larger-than-life personality that people are drawn to right away. Right. Bradfield eventually enrolls in Haverford College, 
where he studied literature and was a wrestler. So here's a fun fact. Uh, Chevy Chase, Judd Nelson, and the um, <laughs> the FBI guy from Twin Peaks went to school at the same college. Really? I mean, obviously the third guy's not real, but it's a pretty interesting crew, right? That is cool. It was during his time at Haverford that he became entranced by the poet Ezra Pound. He kind of described the reading of Pound's book, The ABCs of Reading, as a kind of awakening within himself. So he's like the English teacher who's like really into it. So is he like holding the skull and like saying Shakespeare lines? Well, he... like that? <laughs> yeah, except he was into Ezra Pound, not Shakespeare. <laughs> Come on, John, pay attention. Sorry. So Bradfield is going to learn everything he could about the poet, including the fact that he was institutionalized in St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C. I mean, it's not really the best role model he could have chosen because the poet just barely escaped charges of treason for supporting Benito Mussolini during World War II. That's a fun fact. Yeah. (laughs) And by supporting Mussolini, I mean, he blamed World War I on the capitalistic system and claimed that fascism was the only way to reform the world. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Ezra Pound kind of claims there's a a small town in France that the leader of the town is going to start issuing money. And he says if the money's not in circulation, then it loses its value. So, like, that was Pound's argument that um, a fascist system could work. So, just a little background. After meeting Mussolini, um, Ezra Pound is quoted as saying, I've never met a man who just got my ideas so quickly. So, that's the company he keeps. Later that year, he wrote a letter to fellow poet James Laughlin, in which he stated that he could not stand President Roosevelt and his support of Jewry. And he signed the letter, Hail Hitler. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah so like it. It, this is just um, the person that Bradfield is just so into and is so entranced by. So it's it's interesting to see um, what he's looking up to. Yeah, definitely. And that the fact that he thinks that this creative mind is um, something that he can identify with is interesting. We've definitely got a great guy in our hands. But Bradford is still obsessed with him. So he goes to St. Elizabeth's. He kind of takes like a little sabbatical off of college. And he's going to work with the poet. He obviously can't leave the institution because Pound has to stay there at all times. So Bradfield is sent to visit the Library of Congress on his behalf to obtain books he needs. Because at this time, he's still writing. Bradfield goes as far as telling people that he offered the poet an escape plan and offered up his attic for a place to hide. Um, I hope the irony is not lost there with the whole jewelry (laughs) comment. I don't know why, but that plan never came to fruition. So Pound never kind of took him up on his offer of being hidden in his attic and trying to escape from a mental institution. No matter what, even if you did escape somehow, I mean, (laughs) what life is that? You're just going to hang out in an attic. Oh, especially Bradfield's attic. Yeah, I don't know about that. Eventually, Bradfield is going to return to college, a newly inspired man. And through Pound's influence, Bradfield, who was raised a Quaker in Pennsylvania, now described himself as a Quaker Confucian Catholic. Wow. 
Yeah. Say that twice as fast or three times as fast. You know that I can't. I know. So I'm asking you to do it. People will complain about me being stuffy. <laughs> um, so I thought that's interesting. Pound, his writing is very religious in a Catholic sense, but then he reflects on ideas kind of like Confucius thinking and main points of his like four noble truths. So that's how that idea kind of began. He's now a Quaker Confucian Catholic. So he's basically like a hipster before hipsters were a thing. Yeah. That's yeah. With the beards. Yeah. Oh yes, because he looked kind of like a hipster. He had this long beard and scraggly hair. By the time Bill graduated college with a master's degree, he was very physically fit. He was 6'3", he had dark blonde hair, full beard, and striking blue eyes. When people describe Bradfield, the first thing they mention is his eyes and how powerful they were. Bradfield eventually becomes a teacher at Upper Marion Senior High School. He is that teacher, you know, the one that's like super into English, he's a charismatic guy, teachers and students tend to flock to, and everyone loves him. This is especially true with the female staff. Bradfield is known as a ladies' man, and he also has several girlfriends at the same time. In true romantic spirit, he says he never goes after the conventionally beautiful women, and he chooses the women who have beautiful souls. Oh. Yeah. Um, even if these souls were married, he really didn't care. <laughs> uh-huh. For such a religious man, I guess, it's, uh, isn't that like something that you're not supposed to do? You know what? That's a really interesting <laughs> point. Right? Yeah, right. he's, he, he claims to be this like religious man that follows this path, but he'll go after marry, uh, married women. Awesome, dude. Right. And, <laughs> you know, we'll find out something interesting about him, too, later on. Bradfield was the kind of guy who had three girlfriends at the same time and was still maintaining affairs with several married women. However, he did not keep quiet about this. There was one incident in particular where a husband found out that his wife who was another teacher at the high school, was having an affair with him. He warned Bradfield to leave his wife alone. Bradfield's response was to charge through the man's front door, chase him down his own hallway, punch him over 20 times, breaking his nose, while yelling, never interfere with me. Yeah. Um, He was arrested for aggravated assault, but the charges were later dropped after he agreed to pay for the man's medical expenses. That's crazy. Yeah. That is insane. So, I mean, of course the guy's going to say, leave my wife alone. You can't really punish him for that one. Yeah, really. So those charges get dropped, but I think it's interesting that we see that there is a violent side to Bradfield's. That's evident in this case, obviously. Everyone in town knew the kind of man Bradfield was, and they knew about the story, but still women wanted to be with him. I think that it's interesting when they say he only chose, I don't want to say ugly women, but that's how people kind of explained it, like homely, plain women right? that weren't like the traditional sense of being attractive. Well, maybe he felt like he had some sort of power over them. Like, you know, I mean, when you hit, when a woman, when a woman isn't striking and, and beautiful, I mean, they have a tendency to kind of, you know, fall for anybody that will give them a look. Right. I feel like maybe he used that for his advantage. Right. Like he's given these women attention. So they're like, oh my God, they're jumping right on right, that. Right. Exactly. And he knows that. Yeah. And then 
Um, one of his colleagues is going to say jokingly, but it's very true, like he could kind of sniff out vulnerability in a woman like a pig could sniffle out. Uh, yeah. Sn- like, yeah, I, I can understand Sniff that. out truffles. Yeah. Is that the saying, right? I think so. Okay, I hope so. <laughs> so now I'm going to add another layer of crazy onto this story. There's going to be lots of layers of crazy throughout the whole episode. We're definitely going to be peeling back these layers yeah. like an onion. <laughs> I'm going to Shrek it up. Remember, because I said that about Shrek. Yes, I got you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted people to get the reference and not think I was a weirdo. <laughs> so Bradfield at this point has three children. Yeah, are they all from different women? Um, No. Well, two. Okay. Okay. So this is a story that he tells all of his, his lovers. In college, he moved in with a woman out of wedlock. Cue Bon Jovi, Living in Sin song. That's what my dad said about us when we moved in together, by the way. Oh, fantastic. That's great to know. (laughs) Um, He said, now we're living in sin. It's okay. It's working out. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting. So him and the first woman woman have two children together. And apparently that woman left. And this is something that Bradford never really fully explains. And then a second woman comes into the picture, and her name is Muriel. I'm so glad that's not a thing anymore. Like Muriel? Muriel. Yeah. That's like the worst name ever. I'm sorry yeah. to any Muriels out there. I know. But Muriel was the grandmother in Courage the Cowardly Dog. Yes. I actually like that And she was show. a badass woman. Yeah, she was yeah. pretty badass. Yeah. That was a ho- I was scared of that show. That show was scary. That and Rocco's Modern Life. Rocco's Modern Life is just kind of bizarre. But we're definitely dating ourselves. Like, I mean, like, we're... Kind of showing like no, that's how not date. Curbs the cowardly dog. Yeah, well, I'm just saying. You know, there might be some people that don't even know what we're talking about. I know. Oh, it was a good show. I think it's on um... Boomerang. Oh, it's on. Okay. Yeah. So Muriel is like most women associated with Bradfield, not attractive. She's very thin, and she's a bad housekeeper. <laughs> but Bradfield said that she was a good mom. So the two came to an agreement. He would give her a baby with the same beauty and brains as he had. And she would take care of his other children in a house. <laughs> I know, It sounds so ridiculous. She would take care of all of his children, so now three children at this point, in a house that was already paid for in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Does that make sense, right? <sighs> this is so weird. It's so weird. Like, everything with Bradfield is like... What? Like, from an outside perspective, we think, how are people buying this? And this is only the first of his craziness. But people bought it 100%. They completely were like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Well, like you mentioned before, when a person has the capability of kind of schmoozing his way or, you know, pretty much just getting over on people in a nice way or like it's a flattering way and people don't or if they're yes people they have no other choice but to say yes yeah well he he's very convincing yeah yeah, you know and and if the story makes sense and at the end of the day it means that this attractive man that everyone likes wants to be with you you're gonna agree with it yeah even if you have questions about it well this is a story that bradfield holds and now in reality he marries Muriel. So he's married. Now, would you say that's just the front for everything else? I'm assuming it's probably like for tax purposes and things like with the children. I mean, be, yeah, you're getting something um, out of the deal. Being covered with medical benefits from school. So 
but he doesn't tell people that he's married to Muriel. Like everyone thinks he's a single guy. But he explains to these other women that Muriel's his common-law wife. So that's kind of like you live together for a certain amount of time. You're considered common-law wife. So they're like, oh, okay. And they buy it when Bradfield says, but don't worry. We can have a spiritual marriage. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like, I'm getting this vibe, though. It's like this weird, like, polygamy vibe. Like, I'm getting, like, like I don't know. um, This is weird, man. It's... Well, I can't reveal anything yet, but we'll get... We're going to get to all this craziness. Okay. Muriel, I think, in my opinion, is probably the smartest woman out of this whole story um, because she just really takes Bradfield's money and just is like, okay, leave me alone now. But all of these women completely bought everything he was saying, hook, line, and sinker. And a side creepy note here, um, this is just kind of like weird. In the books that are written about this case, and I've read a few, so it's been, (laughs) definitely know a lot about William Bradfield. Um, all the women that he had affairs with, I guess you could call them, like affairs, all these women keep referring to Bradfield's um, active time, like active in my quotes, which is weird and <laughs> makes him sound like a werewolf serial killer or that thing from Jeepers Creepers. Like that's kind of what I pictured. Um, <laughs> but they're talking about in the springtime. So this active phase always took place. In the spring, when the women he was involved with would say that his creative juices would be flowing, and that's when he would write his poetry, and he was poetic and and hypnotic one minute, and then icy and cruel the next minute. And this was when he was most attractive. That color was in his face, and his, his eyes would light up while speaking, and he was a handsome magnet. And this is when all of his affairs would begin this is so ridiculous (laughs) this is ridiculous i think that's what you're like in the springtime john i don't think that's how i am in the springtime i I will be the first one to admit i will be the first one to admit that i am probably the least romantic person in the world (laughs) i even though i do try there there are attempts made you're very good you're very i know i'm good but i mean i'm not that great i'm not like this dude like suave (laughs) over here (laughs) It's weird. It's weird it's as hell. It's very strange. Whatever. Okay. So now let's enter character number two. Okay. J.C. Smith. Smith had just become the new principal at Upper Marion Senior High School. He was a staff officer in the U.S. Army Reserve, and he was an odd one. On his first day of the job, he's going to wear his full Army uniform, and he doesn't introduce himself to his secretary for the first whole week of school. And if you know anything about high schools... The one person who runs it is always the secretary. So it was a pretty big mistake. When she did meet him, uh, she described him as having the coldest eyes she'd ever seen. And others described him as a very, very unattractive man. Uh, one of the books that we read to like get ready for this episode was Joseph Wamba's Echoes of Darkness, which we're definitely going to bring up later because it is a little controversial in its covering of this case. But uh, Wamba is going to describe him as looking like an obscene phone call, (laughs) which is like now my new favorite way to describe somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you get a chance to read the book, it covers the crime really well. Humor is very dark and entertaining. Um, While also, I think, covering the case in a respectable manner, which is kind of a weird line 
to be on, but he does it really well. But we'll talk about the controversy involving that book a little bit later on. So Smith's secretary is going to explain how strange she is a little bit more. He would either be behind a locked door all day refusing to come out, or he would be somewhere around the campus and no one could find him. He would ask her to type up army papers for him, which she always refused to do, because he was actually applying to become a colonel, a position that he would later get. He was also known to ask very lewd questions to his staff, which is very strange for a principal. He would ask female teachers what form of birth control they were using, and he asked another widowed woman um, about how she manages her sex life. Are you serious? Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. There's also an incident where Smith was seen by custodians of the school working very late at night in his office. This is very normal for, like, administration to do, except for the fact that Smith um, was found walking to the bathroom in just his underwear. So you mean he took his pants off at some point during the night while he was in his office in the school? Yeah. Isn't that, like, not allowed? <laughs> I, yeah, no, I mean, I feel like it's frowned upon. I mean, I mean, I don't think I never saw my principal in his underwear walking around the school. <laughs> no, that's weird as hell. Nor have I. Um, <laughs> now everyone's picturing their high school principal walking around in their oh, underwear. That's probably a bad picture we yeah, just put in everybody's head. Always. Whoops. So Jay Smith has a family. He has a wife and two daughters. His wife was described as a hot pants, white leather boot wearing, hair teased woman who was very unattractive and worked at a local dry cleaner. So <laughs> she. She apparently would tell anyone who would listen about her husband's eccentricities. Like his feelings about, are you ready for this? Bestiality. What the fuck? And that he was having an affair. Wait, so he told her that he was having an affair? Well, she found it through letters. Oh, so she she was telling people that that's okay. okay. That he's having an affair, he's into... Sex with animals, things oh, like that's that. That's weird. That's really... Not, we're getting to a whole other level here, man. I know. Oh, my God. It's weird. It's also weird that you would tell people this because you're still married to this man. Yeah, like... It's not your ex-husband. It's someone you're still with. Right? I guess she has to tell somebody. Well, the family was also going through a hard time because their eldest daughter, a teenager, had run away from home and she was a known drug addict. And this oldest daughter's name is Stephanie. So, and the mother's name is Stephanie, so two Stephanies. And the younger daughter's name is Sherry, but she's still in middle school at this point. So people at school wanted to feel bad for him, but they just couldn't. Like, they kind of saw his wife as a woman who was not happy at home, was kind of just, like, making up weird rumors, and his older daughter was a drug addict. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So this is where our two characters so far are going to converge. Bradfield is a teacher's representative for the union, so he's going to be seeing a lot of Smith because it was common for Smith to write what they called back then reviews, but today they're known as observations, so like principal's going to observe a teacher. Bradfield thought that the reviews that Smith were writing were kind of cruel and a little unfounded, so he has to meet with the man all the time. Like every time he writes a bad teacher review, he's got to go in and kind of like fight it a little bit. But every time he would do so, Smith would use these arcane, ridiculous words that no one had ever heard of, including our English teacher slash Ezra Pound groupie, Bradfield. 
So Bradfield would go look up a word, and most of the time the word, like, it didn't even exist. (laughs) So then he'd go back to Smith and be like, that's not a word. And he's like, yes, it is. It's like ancient something. You know what I would do? What? I would, like, bring an entire, like, stack of encyclopedias and, like, dictionaries. Into the meeting with him. Into the meeting with him so I could, like, just, like, call him out on his bullshit (laughs) right there. Well, it seemed like Smith was doing this on purpose because he believed that teachers were kind of, like, pseudo-intellectuals. And they thought they were smarter than they were. So, like, that's why he was just, like, making up random words. All right. I see where he was going. Yeah. I can see what he was doing, yeah. I can see what he was doing, but he's just, like, a weird dude. Um, However, as time passed, the teachers learned that if they just sucked up the bad reviews, that they never really led anywhere to be – they really never led anywhere. Like, they didn't even make it into their files. And they really could do whatever they wanted in their classrooms under the leadership of Jay Smith. Smith didn't want to interfere, he just wanted to be locked in his office all day, unless it was first period. Because during most first periods, Smith would decide to get on the intercom system and deliver long, rambling speeches about whatever policy he wanted to change, whether it was conduct in the lunchroom or physical education dress code, where he would remind students to wear warm underwear in the winter. (laughs) Like, what? Oh, my God. And, and he would usually talk through the whole first period. Like, I would be so upset. Would you, though? Well, I do like my job. Like, I like teaching. You can't get anything done. Yeah, I guess so. But I, I, I would probably... I, I think I would as enjoy a student, the rants. As a student, I would love it. Yeah. But then, like, as a professional, you have to, like... You have to act like this is still the principal like you can't make a joke of the principal to the students because then what authority is there in the school so you kind of have to be sitting there like yeah yeah he's right yeah could you what (laughs) all right well uh, make sure you put on your toasty underwear like the principal said guys (laughs) (laughs) just so weird so eventually there was no discipline policy in the school whatsoever, and especially no dress code for teachers or students, which is how Bill Bradfield could come in wearing sneakers. He could grow his beard as long as he wanted. Um, because just remember, it's, it's also at this point the early 70s. So teachers were kind of held to this different standard where like women couldn't have children out of wedlock and men had to be clean shaven and they had to wear like a three piece suit to school. And now all of a sudden it's like this lax, like hippie high school is kind of like what is happening. So Bradfield also um, just began teaching kind of whatever he wanted he was obsessed, which I, I wish. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be awesome. Um, he was obsessed with, could you imagine, class on true, cl- true crime? Ah, uh, yeah, that would be <laughs> actually really cool, though. Um, he was obsessed with what he called the classics. And he began teaching Latin and Greek to the higher level students. And it's said by some that Bradfield was a magnetic teacher. That brought in the minds of many students and inspired many to go to college and become English teachers themselves or even major in something like philosophy. But it's said by others that those students were learning as much Greek as a delivery boy from Spiro's Deli down in Philadelphia. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually funny. Yeah. It's so funny. Like, there's nothing meaner than, like, a teacher talking shit about another teacher. Oh, yeah. It's so bad. 
Um, either way, it looked good, and the superintendent and the school board loved the idea of telling the community that the students are learning philosophy and Latin and Greek, and it's, you know, it sounds good, but it's not what's happening in the classroom. It's more like uh, Bradfield is just teaching like this, this love for himself. Like, you know what I mean? Like, people are just obsessed with him. He's not really teaching anything. It's more like he's the cool teacher that everyone just likes being in class with. I guess so. I mean, I had a teacher like that in high school. I know, but I think that it's just different with him because he's trying to get them, like, like, he's trying to get them to be a part of his, like, group. It's like a cult. Yeah. It's like this weird, like... He's like uh, Charles Manson of teachers. Yes, yes. Yeah. Side note, real quick. My high school teacher was the best. Mm -hmm. My history teacher was awesome. I would come in, and he would just, like, jump on his table and put pencils into the ceiling. Into like the little ceiling tiles, you know, a drop, you know, like a drop no. down ceiling, and he would like scream like Japanese phrases, like whatever we were learning at the time. It was actually kind of fun. That does you know, sound uh, fun. A little crazy, but he was cool. It's always like the teachers with the big personalities that students tend to like gravitate towards, and I think he found his way to do it. Except he just didn't back it up with real education. No, Bradfields. Yeah. One teacher though who is going to stick to the rules and the dress code is going to be Bradfield's colleague, Susan Rayner. She's also an English teacher at the same high school. So she's a married 33-year-old woman with two kids, Karen and Michael. Susan was married to Ken Rayner, who had served in Vietnam and was now working at a bank. But Susan wasn't happy in her marriage. I think you see where this is going. Mm -hmm. In her diary, she disclosed that she was no longer in love with Ken. And felt very little in common with him anymore. However, she felt really guilty about this. She didn't want to selfishly break up her family just because she wasn't happy. Like, that's just not the way things were done. Especially back then. Divorce wasn't as common as it is today, unfortunately. Yeah, right. yeah. People tried to actually work things out. After one night, when the English department got together to debate the difference between classical literature and American literature... So, what a boring party that sounds like. Oh, God. Oh, so they got, they went to a woman's house to, to really just discuss it. Like, what was better, like, um, the Odyssey or The Great Gatsby? Like, that was their topic of discussion. The Great Gatsby's good, though. I, and and so is the Odyssey. The Odyssey is good. I'd still go Great Gatsby. You, you go Great Gatsby I over love, the Odyssey? Yeah, Great Gatsby's great, man. Okay, all Such right. a good, good story. I like it. Okay, so we'll talk about that later. Okay. Maybe we'll have a debate. Can we not? Um, no, we won't. <laughs> we definitely will not do that. There's football on tonight. Um, as he was explaining how horrible he found American literature, <laughs> because remember, Bradfield was a fan of the classics, Susan began to fall in love with the intense intellectual man, which makes me wonder if it was springtime. It must have been. You know, his juices were flowing. <laughs> his juices seemed to be flowing. Yeah. Um, others that they get together remember things a little bit differently. They said that Bill was really intense. And intense in a bad way. Like when he would make his arguments about how he felt, he would do so like inches from someone's face. Talk about your personal space. Yeah. Like stay out of my square. I know. Is that a square or a circle? 
Um, it's a circle. All right, so stay out of my circle. Stay out of my like, circle. I mean, Don't be a close I mean, talker. It could, be a, it could be a square, though, anyway. Well, I think the whole point was, like, he was very intimidating. Yeah, no, but what the hell are you in people's faces for? By the end of the night, the two were found sitting very closely to each other. Bradfield was whispering in Susan's ear. and were no they one sweet nothings? I Probably. <laughs> no one really thought anything of it. Bradfield had been having affairs with his colleagues for years. Talk about shit where you eat. Yeah. It's uh, not a good idea. No. And there's one female in particular that Bradfield was having an affair with. And this woman is named Sue Myers. So obviously there's two Susans in this story. So Susan Rayner is married woman with two children. But Sue Myers, who's also an English teacher at the high school, was involved in a relationship with Bradfield since about, like, 1963. So it started when she was in her early 20s. And she thought that her and Bradfield would end up getting married. But he kept giving her that excuse about a spiritual marriage and um, things will work out eventually. But she kind of knew in the back of her head that Bradfield was having all of these affairs. But things kind of took a turn in 1973 when he asked Sue Myers if he could move in with her. So she thought like, oh, this is finally my time with Bradfield and we're going to be together. But she continued to find all of these letters to other women. And so it was a it's a very complicated story. But at this time, William Bradfield's is living with Sue Myers. But now he's pursuing the other English teacher, Susan Rayner. Wow. Yeah. He has balls. Oh, yeah. He has balls. Yeah. I I, I just... Uh, are, are these more like one-night stands, though? Or no. are these like, let's have relationships? Like, like he was just kind of... No, these are like elaborate affairs. Right. But I'm, I'm just saying, are we sure there weren't affairs or they were one night stands because it seems like because let me ask you this if Mm -hmm. i was to uh be with you and i you know was with like three other women and those three other women never ever ever said anything and didn't react to the fact the acknowledgement that there's others is it just because they were on the same page that it was a one night stand and that's it or that they were so infatuated with this one man that they let it go that he's basically screwing them all well i think it's uh a combination of things. I think that Sue Myers, who was also described as being unattractive, and now at this point she's been with Bradfield for so long, she's in her mid-30s and she's not married and she doesn't have kids, that it seems like that's her only option is to stay with him. So, like, some do it out of desperation. Some do it out of not wanting to believe it's true. Like, they want to believe his lies because he's very good at spinning webs. Yeah. And... Some are just oblivious. I'm just going to add this one last thing, too. Uh Uh-huh. And then we'll move on. You know what they say? What? If you get a few uh, girls that are twos, eventually you'll get a dime piece. What does that even mean? Meaning, you know, oh, my God, Kay. Like, you know. No, but he doesn't want that. Well, he must be. I mean, if he's getting a bunch of uh, two girls, they eventually equal a ten. Oh, you mean, like, all together? All together, yeah. Uh, Duh. I didn't even get my joke. Sorry, I don't know about your uh, womanizing jokes. Well, all right, I was just trying to make a guy. Never mind. Okay, Susan Rayner, she was very unhappy with her relationship, so it's pretty easy to notice that she was vulnerable at the time. 
People describe her as mousy, so kind of not attractive. So that's um, another point that Bradfield usually tries to uh, hone in on when it comes to women. I just think it's important to point out that he's definitely seems like he's preying upon these women and taking advantage of their vulnerability versus like, like, I don't think it's that these women are stupid. I think it's that they feel like, well, I've never had a attention paid to me before. Right. So if this is what I have to deal with, then that's what I'll deal with. And maybe if I stick it out, I'll win over the other women. Right. They'll come out the other side winners. Yeah, I get it. Right. So eventually, um, Susan and Ken are going to separate. He suspected Susan of having an affair with Bradford. After he leaves, is going to call Susan daily because he really wants to get back together and work things out. He wants his family back together. He thinks he made a mistake. But Susan kind of knew that the marriage was over. She'd felt that way for a long time. There weren't romantic feelings there anymore. So... With or without Bill Bradford in the picture, she was kind of done with Ken. And Susan is going to tell one of her close friends that her and William Bradford have a five-year plan. And when he is emotionally and financially ready, they will marry. However, the only complication to this is the fact that Bradfield is still living with Sue Myers. And while he finally moved in with her, Sue Myers is going to try to make things a little bit more difficult for Bradfield to kind of see his other women. Bradfield likes keeping all of the letters that he writes and receives from these other women. Like, I guess it's kind of like his trophies or like his letters. Like, I think he sees himself as like this great poet or literary master and he needs to keep all of his correspondence. And Sue Myers ends up finding all of these letters. And it's almost like, does does he want her to find them? Probably not. She was probably just snooping. Yeah. So Sue Myers, I guess, by all accounts, is very accepting because she definitely knows. And if it's not accepting, maybe she's just completely numb. Right. To what's happening. And she definitely knows about all of them. And like I said before, she's in her mid-30s, no children. It's the mid-70s, so that's kind of a big deal. I mean, women were having children in their early 20s. Yeah. So just as Bradfield was beginning his affair with Susan Raynard, Bradfield's live-in girlfriend is going to find another letter in the apartment they now shared. And the letter was from a former teacher at the high school. And this kind of answers your question about the one-night stands or whatever. In the letter that Sue found, she found out that Bradfield had gotten the woman pregnant. And this is why she left the school district. Obviously, like I said before, it's frowned upon that a woman's pregnant out of wedlock. So Sue thought the woman left to advance her career to get her master's degree somewhere else. But she was shocked and she confronted Bradford in tears. But somehow he convinced her that he would never be unfaithful again. But he was. And later, Sue is going to admit to knowing that Bradfield had at least slept with another 16 women while they had their 15-year relationship. Man. Playa, playa. That's, that's what she knows about. That's crazy. That's crazy. Well, I mean, it it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to be in one relationship. I can imagine, like, 16. <laughs> I know. So Bradfield convinces Sue that he wants nothing to do with Susan. However, a few weeks later, she sees him giving Susan looks... 
in the faculty room. And Susan winks back at him. So this causes Sue to break down. She freaks out in the middle of the halls of the high school. And she screams at Bradfield in front of everyone, including students. Not her. Damn it, not her. She is downright homely, for God's sakes. And Bradfield eventually got her to calm down, promising that she was imagining things. And they would talk later at home. Although he seemed to have convinced her for a short time, her suspicions were later confirmed again about Susan that they were definitely having an affair. Due to a letter found for Bradford written by Susan, and I guess you could say the letter's kind of pornographic, Susan is just explaining that she misses Bradfield and longs to have sex with him again, and then she explains that sex in a lot, a lot of detail like pure dramatic English teacher fashion detail and she tells Bradfield that she can't stand him or herself she hates herself for wanting him and hates him for not wanting her as much as she wants him ooh so poetic I know oh (laughs) it's so ridiculous I know so Sue confronts Susan in front of her homeroom class and says, I will expose your letter if you do not leave leave Bill alone. This bothered Susan. Not only did that mean that she might lose her job, but this could affect the custody she had over her children because her husband at this point is fighting for full custody because now he's remarried and him and his wife are trying to have another child. Oh, shit. Yeah. So this situation of Bradfield living with Sue but having an affair with Susan went on for years. And right around the third year of this arrangement, Sue either, um, she kicked Susan in the shin or kneed her in the thigh. Like, there's two different stories. And she said, if you keep seeing Bill, you're putting yourself and your children at risk. She was threatening her. She was physically threatening her. So now everyone Susan told about this just warned her, like, just get out of this situation. Like, even if this guy is the greatest guy in the world, like, is it worth it? Yeah, to ha- I mean, to go through all this bullshit for a dude. Right, and kind of think about your children a little bit here, too. Yeah. Especially if someone's threatening you and your kids. It's, I would, yeah, it's just something that. you should back away from. So, to, to add to this insane drama that's going down at the high school. Um, oh, so I don't want to forget to mention this part. Of course, Bradfield, with all of his women in his life is going to have rumors flying around the high school that he's sleeping with some of his students who he considers gifted and was tutoring them in Greek and Latin. Most believe these rumors to be true. Might have been tutoring them in something else, too. Yeah. And this is because of a group that became uh, begun to follow him. Uh, Bill Bradfield, I guess you could say, was kind of, um, he was like a charismatic teacher that just had groups of students that never left his classroom. Yeah. And he did, we do know that he slept with students who'd graduated. If that sexual relationship began while they were students and he was a teacher, seems most likely because as soon as they graduated he was sleeping with them right like there like had it to be came out of, that he was sleeping right, with them right like they ha- it had to start at some point before they graduated because it happened right after yeah that's weird yeah wow. so that's a weird line that's being crossed by bradfield as well and he has this group of people that kind of are drawn to him and they're very involved in this case that we're going to be talking about 
And the, the media later calls them the Bradfield Intimates. So it's like these group of people that are like very close to Bradfield, listen to everything he says, does everything he asks them to do. You know what this reminds me of? What? For our audience listening, if you haven't seen this show, I totally recommend it. But this whole thing from start to right now, so far, sounds like the following. That TV series with Kevin Bacon. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty similar. Right, the English teacher. The English, yeah. the, you know, the, you know, the lit with professor. Poe and, yeah. Poe, the whole following cult that he had. They did anything for him. That's very true. It's, it's actually very similar to that. I wonder if they actually took that from that. I wonder. Maybe even a little bit of it because it's maybe weird. Maybe a little bit. It's very you know, He strange. definitely used his... Um, well, his, his his charming like his background in literature yes. and his speech, his yeah. yeah. Anyway, check it out. So, yeah, the second season I didn't think was as good as the first season. First season we was stopped great, watching yeah. it. So, one of these men is this is Vince Valentis, and he is a fellow English teacher at the high school. He's a young young teacher. He's about twenty two years old. He's deeply religious. He's a virgin. And I know it's weird that I brought that up, but Bradfield loves this. So when someone's a virgin, Bradfield's kind of like obsessed with this idea of them being a virgin and their purity. And he preaches for people to keep their chastity. And he says that if he could, he would just, he would not have sex and he would be celibate. And after a certain time, he actually stops having sex with Sue Myers and he claims that he is celibate. But it's pretty clear that he's not. Yeah. I mean, but he makes these claims. It's just like this kind of like obsession that he has. So he like looks up to Vince, he says, because he is a virgin himself. But Vince is just a very religious man who's saving himself for marriage. Um, he, I mean, the guy carries rosaries around with him. Oh, my God. Like he's wow. really religious. And at one time he wanted to be a priest, actually. Bradfield and Sue Myers, who now live together in an apartment building, they are going to convince... They're going to convince Vince to move into the same apartment building as them. So Vince lives in the same apartment building as Sue Myers and Bill Bradford. Next is uh, Chris Pappas. And he is a former student of Bradfield's who studied philosophy and is now a substitute teacher in the district that Bradfield and Myers and Rayner and Valentis teach in. And he claims to be a dedicated student of Bradfield's. And he's actually dating a woman named Jenny, who is also a student of Bradfield's. And they claim to have the same purely spiritual relationship like Sue and Bradfield have. Like, it's not about sex. It's about souls. These weird groupies. Yeah, it's very strange. And then um, Jenny and Chris have a friend, Shelly, who was also a student of Bradfield's. And during high school, he had talked her into converting to Catholicism. Wow. Yeah. And now she was deeply devout. And she claims that her and Bradfield had an intense spiritual relationship. And despite spending numerous nights in the same hotel room and going on summer trips together, they never had sex. They just cuddled. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. (laughs) I will say this. This is the one reason why... Even though I'm probably the worst millennial of all time, like the other day, I it was the first time I ever used Uber. That's how non-millennial I am. But I'm just saying, 
Like, I'm glad technology exists. That way none of these weird fucking excursions happen and all these, like, <laughs> let's hang out and cuddle and let's tell people we're not having sex and, like... All, listen, Dude, I, people are so weird like that. I'm just saying, technology helps a little bit here. I wouldn't be going on a fucking excursion with some random dude. John, technology because. has allowed people to, like, become furries and get together at conventions. Trust me, it allows for weirdness. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying that... At least with technology. It's let weirdos know that other weirdos are out there. That's true. But at least it would occupy my time so I wouldn't try to be a devout fucking weirdo uh, (laughs) with these people that don't matter. Okay. Are you done? I'm totally done with my rant. Rant over? Okay. So, Bradfield Intimates. We got Vince, Chris, Shelly, now enter Rachel. Rachel is an intellectual woman. And she was described as being very, 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 very strange. That's a lot of varies. I know, but that's the way it was written. Do you want to say that again? No. Okay. She met Bill in one of a, his grad school classes. She was getting her PhD at Harvard. She was a very smart woman, but um, she doesn't come into the picture a little bit later, but she is going to also be having an affair with Bradfield. At this point, who isn't? I know. <laughs> Then, of course, like we know, Sue Myers, who has the longest standing relationship with Bradfield and, in my opinion, is probably the most abused of them all. So that's Bradfield's crew. And the one thing that these people have in common is that they were all roped in by this charismatic teacher. And that's not the only drama that I was talking about, though. Okay, let's not forget about the weird kind of pervy principle we got going down. Dr. Smith. Remember Smith's wife who worked at the dry cleaner, Stephanie? She, a lot like Sue, loved to snoop around. Oh, boy. And she finally broke into the basement, which was always locked. If if you're married to someone and they will not let you in one room of the house, that's bad. <laughs> like, there's something wrong. Yeah. Though, I will say this, when I... When I lived at home with my parents, I wish I could have locked the basement because in my house, we weren't allowed to watch movies. My mom wouldn't stop talking or be on the phone. So I'd lock myself down there to watch a movie. (laughs) Yeah, but but this is not what people, when people lock themselves and don't allow someone in a room, they're not watching movies. No, I know that. They're doing some weird stuff. There's so many serial killers that had these locked rooms that their wives were never allowed in. Which John Wayne Gacy, Jerry Brudos. And all those people, and all it's those like, wives. It's like, hello, what do you think's going on Listen, in that lady, room? Don't tell me that you didn't know this shit was going on downtown. <laughs> yeah, you, you kn- fucking knew. You knew some weird stuff was happening behind that door. Yeah. What are those noises? Like strange. So when she finally broke into the basement, she found a lot of swingers magazines where couples advertise for other couples who might be interested in a, a swinging situation. I guess is the only way to explain it. One of the ads had a picture of a couple but it was like the face of the woman and only the back of the man and she was like that's my husband like she knew that's very weird yeah also he was putting ads in for uh, for uh couples to swing yes oh god what with the- another woman oh yeah so and she also found several letters written back and forth between him and another woman who was the wife of a college professor, 
that they were friends with, like in their circle of friends. And these letters were so graphic. Promiscuous? Like, no, John. Like, oh. not promiscuous. That I can deal with. But this was like... I can't even read one sentence of those letters. That's how bad they were. Do you have it? I I'll show you later. It's very, I'm getting I'm blushing just thinking about it. I was going to say cuz I mean I'll read it for the audience if you like. John, no. <laughs> I it would be a whole nother level of explicit that this podcast would have to go on. Okay. It has to do with um sex acts that are probably illegal <laughs> in most states. Um it's just, it's so bad. It's, it's so disgusting. So it's not like the Karma Sutra. It's worse? No, it's not. It's not like, no, I want to throw up reading it. It's gotcha. disgusting. Okay. So um, <laughs> after, now I'm not hungry for dinner. After Stephanie finds these letters, she goes right to a divorce lawyer, right? And she tells them everything. In fact, she tells anyone who will listen. Oh my God. Everything. Everything about the letters and a weird little devil's costume that he always likes to wear. Okay. And his collection of um, rubber dildos that he had in his basement. Wait. Wait. Why does this dude have dildos? I don't know, John. It has to go back to the letter. Okay? Just think about it. This is so weird. And this is now a principal and an army reserve general. So imagine how fast this gossip took on. I'm gonna, I'm the, but... the principal is having this disgusting affair. He has dildos in his basement and he <laughs> dresses up in a devil's costume to have sex. Could you imagine <sighs> those rumors flying around a small town? But let me ask you, if I... Not to mention the teacher who's having sex with everybody on the planet. But hold on. If you found out that I had dildos in a devil's costume downstairs, you wouldn't be telling people, would you? No, I wouldn't tell anybody. Like that's embarrassing. I wouldn't be like, <laughs> oh my god. I can't even. Like, what's she thinking? What so, hell, man? well, unfortunately, the divorce is going to be put on hold because the whole Smith household is going to go through some pretty difficult stuff. Stephanie is actually diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer. Hmm. And their older daughter, Stephanie, who is now married, has just entered a rehab program because things have gotten so bad with her drug addiction. So she enters the program with her new husband, with the support of his family and and now her family because her mother's sick. So she wants to get better. Right. Okay. So things at Upper Marion High School are very interesting, to say the least. Um could you have imagined being a student at this time? Yeah, I wish I was. Like, that would have been shit, so cool. All that shit that went down, I'd want to know everything. Oh my god, I know. Just because it's funny. It's so weird. If I found out my principal played with dildos, I'd have laughed for days. Oh god. Okay, so Smith begins... Wait, could I... I want to tell the audience about what I did once. It has nothing to do with what? dildos. Okay, okay, okay right. I got well, nervous. Right. I, I, I set myself off that. Well, actually, it does have something to do with a John, dildo. John, what? But I... No, hold on. Okay. I'm getting judged. Okay. There was a time where uh, my senior year of high school, I wanted to play a prank on one of my friends. So what I did was I went out and I got some uh, crazy glue and... I got a, my friend got a dildo, like he bought a dildo out of the, out of the store. I can't believe you're telling this story. Right uh, I, I can't either, but I think it's kind of fitting. Um, and the dildo had like a suction cup, so I put a shit ton of crazy glue on a suction cup and put it on my friend's car um, on the roof. So he didn't see it. And it was, an old, so it was an older car, he didn't care about it, so I knew it wasn't a big deal. Like he literally was nonchalant, never cared about his car. So it was all rusty and it was like a rust bucket, but I put this big 
orange dildo on the top of his roof of his car, and he never even seen it. Like he he was driving around with it on there and everything. How did he not for like see a it? good day and a half? Well, and he just didn't know what the hell was going on. So yeah, there was just this big big ass orange dildo just like suction cup to the roof of his car with crazy glue. And um, when he finally saw it, he laughed and kept it on there for the rest of the school year until he was told to take it off. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so Smith at this point is still teaching because obviously this stuff is all hearsay and it's just strange. So he begins to institute something that the teachers hate. Two things, actually. The first is called open class. And this means that the high school is kind of conducted like a college class, so attendance isn't mandatory. The students would just be on campus somewhere. Some students would be in the library or you know it's mid 70s so they're either smoking pot under the trees on campus or in the parking lot in their cars and the teachers were pissed because the only class in which attendance was mandatory was first period so proper attendance could be taken however teaching really couldn't be done because this is when principal smith would begin what he called open mic in which he would talk for the entire period about whatever he was thinking that day So, like, he just started to get more and more bizarre. So, as Smith is instituting his reign of craziness on the school, the teacher's room is tense. There are at least five women in that room at one time or another who have at some point been romantically involved with Bradfield. The teachers finally get some sort of relief when Smith is removed from the office's principal. Things just weren't working out. The classes were a mess, test scores were down, and a lot of things were being stolen from the school, and he didn't really seem to be doing anything about it. So the board decided to go in a different direction. So if you think they fired him, you'd be wrong. They promoted him. He became the director of special services, meaning that he oversaw all the special education and transportation programs within the Upper Marion School District not just the high school. They figured this better suited Smith because he'd be behind a locked door and he would not have contact with students or the intercom system. However, two massively bizarre things are going to happen in Smith's life at this point. First, his daughter and her husband, whose name is Edward Hunsberger, are going to go missing. The last person that saw the couple alive was Smith. They hadn't taken any of their things with them, And they usually saw or contacted Edward's parents every day. However, they just completely stopped all forms of communication. The odd thing, though, was someone somehow was cashing their welfare checks each week. Now, most people suspected that Smith had something to do with the disappearance of his daughter and his son-in-law. They knew something was off and that Smith knew more than he was saying about the couple going away, but there was nothing they could do about it. They were adults known drug addicts, so it became less and less of a priority for the police when nobody could contact them. Um, But that's until Smith found himself in, in a little bit of more trouble. On August 19th, 1978, a couple in a movie theater parking lot saw a man with a gun in each hand peering into the window of a van. They thought this was strange, so they snuck away and called police. Smart. As they were giving the report to the police, they saw the car that they saw the man get out of and they said, there it is, that's the car the guy was in. So the cops put out an APB for the make and model of the car they saw. And what do you know, a short while later, the same car was spotted driving erratically. 
When they pulled the man over, he had a loaded gun in his hand and he stood up. He was asked to drop the gun twice. And finally he did. And after a search of the car, the cops found four loaded guns, bolt cutters, a mask, a homemade silencer, a syringe filled with ethchlorinol, which I know I probably pronounced wrong, but all you need to know is that if you inject it, it could produce unconsciousness in the victim. And the gun-wielding driver of this car was Jay Smith. Oh, he's a wackadoo. Yeah. Wow. So this eventually will lead to a search warrant for his house, including his always locked up, no Stephanie's allowed basement. I want to know what's in there. And nothing could prepare anyone for what was found in there. (laughs) Keep in mind that this is a former principal, current director of special services for one of the richest school districts in Pennsylvania, like King of Prussia area. And wait, I forgot to tell you. The reason why they decided to search the basement to begin with, like they weren't even going to search it, but they overheard him on the phone with one of his neighbors. So like, you know how like the police listen to phone calls while you're in jail. And he was telling the neighbor to get a package out of his basement. So they're like, what's he talking about? So they followed the, the neighbor. And when the neighbor left the house with a the package, they stopped him. And it ended up being like half a kilo of pot. So they're like, oh, we're getting a search warrant. And that's the whole reason. Like, he did it himself. What an idiot. Yeah. So in his basement, police found, you ready? Chains, books about bestiality, a lot of books about bestiality and homosexuality, four gallons of nitric acid, lots of Valium, five more silencers, and an additional 1.4 kilos of marijuana a wide array of dildos, and a lot of stolen property from the Upper Marion High School school district. So he was stealing. He was stealing. That's why he wasn't investigating it or getting anybody in trouble for it, reprimanding anybody for it. Right. And security badges. Ooh. So police didn't know what to tackle first. But the security badges were very interesting. Earlier that year, there was a robbery of one of the Sears stores and an attempted robbery of another store. In both cases, a man showed the same security badge Smith had in his house and claimed to be the person collecting the money for the night. Oh, shit. Wow. Yep. Clever. So now this principal, like, what didn't he do? Like, what crime didn't he commit at this point? Yeah, like, this is crazy. Between stealing property from the school district having those badges marijuana yeah like (laughs) dildos he had everything down there so now jay smith was facing three felony charges theft at the sears store theft of property from the school district and possession of contraband drugs i'm sure if they could they would have charged him with being a weirdo (laughs) (laughs) but they couldn't do that and they couldn't make heads or tails of the other stuff Another interesting thing that Smith had on him was his daughter's social security card, which is how he may have been cashing the welfare checks. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Throughout the preparation for trial, Smith was trying to defend what he called the perverted things that were found in his basement. 
He said he was doing research, uh, that he was writing a book about dogs being alternative lovers, and another book entitled How to Prevent Homosexuality in Your Child. And that's why he had all of the gay pornography in his uh, basement. Well, it, it was gay pornography or it was a book on homosexuality? It was gay pornography. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, his lawyer asked for a change of venue, but it was denied. <laughs> And eventually Smith is going to make bail and he spends most of the time in his basement um, as his wife spends most of her time in the hospital trying to fight the terminal cancer that has now spread. While out, he gets a lot of support from none other than William Bradfield. Bradfield is still living in his drama-filled world as well as he maintains his little group that in and he maintains that he is in no way dating Susan Raynard. <laughs> But he is. He tells them that Susan is obsessed with him, that she is sex-crazed woman who's putting herself in dangerous situations with men, and that he is stepping in simply to give her advice. And in reality, Bradfield's beat-up Volkswagen bug could be seen most nights parked outside of Susan's house. However, their relationship, whatever it may have been, is definitely tumultuous. One night, Bradfield must have stood Susan up for dinner because the next day she came into school with leftovers. And Susan gave those leftovers to a student and told them to deliver them to Mr. Bradfield and to tell him that this is from the dinner you missed last night. Why are you getting your students involved? Right. That's it's, bullshit. It's very strange. Uh, when Sue finds out about this, she's furious. And Bradfield, covering up his tracks, is going to ask Vince to go talk to Susan and ask her to stop because Bradfield says she is obsessed. Vince, the good follower, steps in and tells Susan that she should stop because this shouldn't have been done at school and maybe she should just leave Bradfield alone and that he's not interested in her. Susan responds and says, I think this is so, and I think this is like super telling. When Susan responds to Vince, she says, I know he has to say that because he's slowly trying to leave Sue, but Bill's scared of what she will do to me and my children if he leaves abruptly. So when Vince reports back later that night, Bradfield is going to say that Susan is now dating Smith. Now, I don't like interjecting too much, but I think that this is the web that Bradfield is spinning, keeping everyone content. He's telling Susan that he's leaving slowly so sue won't hurt her and her kids while he's telling everyone else that susan is obsessed with him but he's telling susan that he's telling people she's obsessed with him and she's going along with it because she thinks that's his plan right and because everyone is so uncomfortable with the whole situation no one ever exchanges stories like to call him on his bullshit you know what i mean yeah definitely to stop the whole conversation about bradfield even being in a relationship with susan bradfield throws out this crazy elaborate weird scenario of susan dating smith do you know what i'm saying yeah, like definitely. he's he's trying to throw everyone off his tracks okay so i know that this is a lot and it seems like an episode of days of our lives but knowing all of these details is so important to the build-up and background of this crime that needs to be told or else the whole crime doesn't make sense. So basically where we are right now is Jay Smith is awaiting trial for three felony charges. Bradfield is juggling his many affairs, but it seems at this point he may become a little bit unhinged. One day he wakes up in the middle of the night to a devoted Sue right next to him, and he tells her that he must help Dr. Smith, as he always calls him. 
he says that he just had a dream and that in that dream, he remembered that he saw Dr. Smith at the Jersey Shore on the day he supposedly robbed one of the Sears stores. So if he didn't rob one of the stores, he obviously didn't rob the other store. Makes sense, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Apparently, one of the other teachers at the high school has a summer house in Ocean City, New Jersey. This teacher made a bet that Bradfield would not make the trip to visit him. Bradfield did, in fact, visit the teacher, and he left a note on the teacher's door saying something like, I won the bet, I was here, but you weren't. And he says that he ran into Smith down the shore that day, too. So Bradfield is now, as he confides in his crew, he's got to do the right thing. He's got to help an innocent man because that's what he's supposed to do. Self-righteous fighter. Correct. So Bradfield begins making many visits to Dr. Smith. And he also reassures Sue that he is not having an affair when he's out, but definitely with Dr. Smith, which is probably true half the time. In that time that Bradfield is helping Smith, his physical appearance begins to diminish. He's called Rasputin behind his back, you know, because he's so like, he's entrancing and... Yeah. He loses weight, he grows his beard out, and he's rambling a little bit more than usual. Bradfield at this time was going through money troubles as well. <laughs> at one point, him, him and Sue and Vince are going to open an art store together. So they pool their money. I mean, Bill gets his money from uh, taking a second mortgage out on his house that Muriel lives in. Right. So he takes a second mortgage out on it. And then they invest into this like art store, but it's doing horribly. Like it's failing miserably. When you say art store, you talking like a, like a gallery? No, it's not like a gallery. It's like they sell art supplies. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's weird. So his weird little art store that he opened with Sue and Vince isn't panning out too well. Even though Vince and Sue are always there working after school for free. And this is troubling to Bradfield because his second mortgage on the house needs to start being repaid and to go sailing for the entire summer. He plans on buying a sailboat and just sailing around with Shelly or Rachel or Sue or whoever he decides to take that summer. But something interesting just happened. That may change the tides of William Bradford's life. William Bradfield's life. Susan Raynard just inherited $34,000, a share of a timber company, and a $1,500 ring. And in all, like if we were to sum up that whole thing, in today's money, that would be worth $200,000. Wow. Yeah. So guess who he's going to focus on? Susan. Yeah, Susan. <laughs> you know what it is? There's just so many people. I know. There's so many people. There I'm, are so many names. I'm like I'm like drowning in the names right I now. I know. It's really hard. And it doesn't help. I swear in every story that we do, there's always women that have the same name. It's, it's every always time. like that. Even our first episode. I there's know. so many double names. So when Bradfield talks to his crew about all the time he is spending out, he decides to confide something in them. He says, I'm going to tell you something, guys, but we got to keep it between us, and it's really serious. And they're like, anything, Bill, anything. And he admits to them that Jay Smith 
is a hitman for the mafia. Oh my god, really? Yeah. Like, and what evidence does he even have to support that? Oh, he's got lots of evidence to support this. You know, fake shit, probably. <laughs> so Bradfield will tell everyone in his crew that Smith is a contract killer. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. Um, he reads the want ads, and when a particular ad is placed, he goes out and kills the person that's referred to in the ad in some crazy way. Smith is a trained killer, and he's killed hundreds of people. However, his newest target is Susan Rayner because she knows too much about his bizarre sexual habits, and she must go. Bradfield says that he saw all of the guns, the silencers, and the acid in the basement. Vince suggests that maybe they should discuss this with the police. If Smith is intending to kill Susan, let's tell the police. Well, that would be the smart thing to do. Well, absolutely not, says Bradfield. We can't do that because Smith knows people on the police force in town and in other towns and in the surrounding counties. This guy's covering all his... All his bases. Yeah. But it's what he's good at. He then proclaims that it is he himself who must protect Susan Raynard. And of course, to keep up this act, he says... That she's so bothersome and she's so annoying and he doesn't know why that he's leaving, she's leaving all this money to him or why he would be the person who would take care of her children if anything ever happened to her. She's so annoying. That's what he keeps (laughs) saying. So everyone in the group was either an employee or a former student of the high school in which Jay Smith was the principal and later director of special services of. Um, yes, they knew he was really weird, but they were shocked by the accusations that Bradfield was making. Um, they never would question him though. Like they knew that Smith was a weird guy, so they couldn't defend him or his character. So that's why they believed Bradfield. Right. And Bradfield sealed their mouths even further by saying, if Smith even knew that all of you know, you would all be dead. So now everyone's, like, not going to say anything because they think that, what if this is true? And we do end up dying for saying this. It's so crazy. He has everyone looped around his finger. And it. And once again, I'm going to bring somebody else up. It reminds me of, like, L. Ron Hubbard, how he, like, had all these, like, elaborate roosts, like, these plans to, mm-hmm. like, you know, do this and do that and, like, rope all and these make people up into it. And make and up, how big yeah. he was. It's very similar, and it's like... Well, I just think it's a common trait of, um, like, sociopath. Yeah. And someone who also is a a narcissist. Yeah. And he just needs people, like, believing his lies, following him, and, and the second someone doesn't, it's like the end of the world. Yeah, definitely. Bradfield is going to be spending a lot more time with Susan Rayner. He spends nights at her house. He buys gifts for her children. However, Susan is not like Bradfield's other women. She's not okay with the strange situation of him half in and half out, not knowing what he's doing when he's half out. So she gives him an ultimatum. And this has never happened before. Susan says either Bradfield leaves Sue or she's completely out. Now, Bradfield doesn't want to lose his money train. So he agrees and says he will leave Sue slowly over the course of the next year And the couple would marry in a beautiful ceremony in England with Susan's children by their side. And Susan was excited because this is exactly what she wanted. 
even though her friends, family, and therapist were telling her to run as fast as she could in the opposite direction, Susan felt special with Bradfield, something she never had before. And that's understandable. It's also sad. It's very sad. Yeah. And it's very sad. Um, Something that was also promised to Shelley was a beautiful wedding ceremony in France, where then they would then spend their honeymoon um, traveling the same seas as the black ships had, like, by the Mycenaeans in ancient Greece. Even though that sounds fantastic (laughs) for most, he's just, like, blowing smoke of everybody's ass. He's saying exactly what everyone wants to hear. So after this agreement is reached, Bradfield is going to request a divorce from Muriel. So it seems like he is kind of trying to take these steps, but I think he's doing so not because he's in love with Susan, but to solidify the fact that he will inherit this money. Because I don't think that it would hold up if deception was shown through the fact that he was already previously married. So I think he wants to show that he was make. Like, he did have the intention of marrying Susan. taken to... To, to do, do what right he thing. said, yeah. yeah. So, he's going to request a divorce from Muriel. His excuse was that the art store was doing horrendous. And it was. And he might have to file bankruptcy. But he didn't want her to be affected by his failings. Which kind of makes sense. It seems like Muriel, like, is a little bit smarter. So, like, he has to use ruses that make sense. Like, he has to tackle her. He agreed that he would still pay for the house and the children, and she agrees. Bradfield is then going to ask Sue to sign a cohabitation agreement, one that he typed up and basically says that the only thing that would be split was the store that the two owned with Vince Valentis, and that if Bradfield, by some chance, were ever to come into money, whether it was left to him in a will or given to him as a gift that it would be his and his alone and not Sue's, despite the fact that they've been in a relationship for 15 years because common law marriage is seven. Hmm. So Sue refused to sign this document. I think she's starting to catch on a little bit about what's going on here with Bradfield. So Sue does not sign the cohabitation agreement. So while this is happening, Susan is telling all of her friends that her and Bradfield are to marry in the summer of 79 which at this point is a year away. She says, like always, she has to keep it quiet because Bradfield is trying to carefully leave the very unstable Sue Myers, and she doesn't want her ex-husband, Ken, to know about the trip to England, which she wanted to last the entire summer because he may forbid the children to go. It seems like Susan is... um, like, kind of catching Bradfield's deception. You know what I mean? Like, she's yeah. starting to deceive people, too. Like, his personality is rubbing off on her a little bit. I also think it's She's very secretive. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess when you're around someone long enough... You start, you start to start get their to, habits. Yeah, you do. You do. You share each other's habits. Mm-hmm. By December of 1978, Susan also starts taking out life insurance policies. Three of them, to be exact. The three life insurance policies all name William S. Bradford Jr. as her beneficiary, and he is to be her future husband, and these policies amount to $740,000. By today's standards, that's just over $2.8 million. 
How did she pay for all these life insurance policies? Uh, there, were, there were three separate ones. She did try and apply for some of them, and some of them she was denied for. But the argument that she had was the fact that she had just inherited money. The house would eventually need to be paid off in her death because she was a single mother. And she inherited shares of the timber company. So it was like she had a lot of equity to back her up. Okay. And she did have the 34000 in the bank. So that's how she got it. Okay. Uh, Bradfield had also convinced Susan to... This is absolutely ridiculous. This is like highway robbery. Convinced Susan to take $25,000 out of her bank for a fail-proof investment. And she did so. She gave the money to Bradfield. He said she was going to get like an 11% return on her money. Did he ever tell her what it was? Well, interestingly enough, um, it was discovered that Bradfield had a separate banking account that Sue didn't know about. For his sailboat. Guess what the... Oh my god. She... <laughs> he used the money to buy a sailboat. Guess what the balance of the sailboat account was? I don't know. $25,000. Oh my god. He was starting to save for the sailboat. But it is evident that Bradfield never planned to go to England with Sue Raynert because he made other plans for that summer. He made plans to stay in a hotel in Cape May. With Sue, Vince, Chris. It was going to be a real party. Um, The week of June the 22nd. I think it's weird that they do everything together. So do I. Right? And in April of 1979, he enrolls in a graduate course that is to be taken in Santa Fe over the course of the entire summer with Chris. So he never intended to go to England with Susan. No he never pl- intends to do anything that he says. However, Chris does question his friend this time because Bradfield scheduled their little Cape May beach vacation and it overlapped with the first day of classes in Santa Fe. So he said, well, why'd you plan it that way? And Bill told him not to worry about it. In fact, in April, Chris and Bradfield are going to go to Santa Fe. And they're going to sign up and check out the campus. And during this trip, Chris did later admit to law enforcement that Bradfield excused himself to go use a payphone. And it just so happens that Stephanie, Stephanie Smith, the wife of Jay Smith, um, very out of it from her numerous chemo and radiation treatments, had received a phone call from Santa Fe from a man claiming to be her son-in-law saying, we're okay. We're living in Santa Fe. Just leave us alone. What? No way. Yes. So. But why would he? Okay. Because he's covering up for Smith. Because obviously the two men are. They're in on something. They're in on something together. Something's going on. Because now it seems like Bradfield is, not only is he the alibi for the Sears store, because apparently they were down the shore together for some, for, by some miracle, the two men met up, right? Right. So he's a bizarre alibi for that. And now he's creating this, in a sense, an alibi for his missing daughter and son-in-law. We're fine. And that implies that Smith knows that his daughter and his son-in-law are not okay. Or he would never ask Bradfield to do that. I mean... To get police off his trail. That's This is very odd. And Stephanie is going to be excited about this because she wants to believe that her daughter's still alive. And she's yeah. very out of it with... You know, chemo and radiation have very 
crazy negative effects on one's mind and the fogginess. And and she believes that that was the voice of her son-in-law. But in fact, it was William Bradfield. This is getting crazy. I know. I love it. It's so good, right? Yeah. So now, of course... I'm not going to go over this every time it happens, but it's just like, it's so bizarre. Just keep in mind that during this whole time that Bradfield is just confessing over and over again to his crew about Smith being a hitman. So like he'll randomly like come running home and say, he showed me all of his silencers today. He showed me his acid. Um, We need to hide this for, for Dr. Smith. And then he'll like come home with all these guns and they have to hide them. Like, it's so weird. Like this is constantly happening while this whole scenario is going downtown. So he says that Smith strikes on holidays because that's when cops aren't really paying attention too much. So every time there's a holiday, like now this has been taking place since 1974 to 1978. So this Bradfield Intimates crew have been dealing with this for four years of craziness. Every time there's a holiday, Bradfield makes them go away because they say that's when Jay strikes and we don't want him, uh, Dr. Smith strikes and we don't want him to kill us. He's like villainized. Like, listen, this guy might be out of his mind and, you know, he likes his bestiality and all this shit, but he's making everyone think that he's like a monster. Yeah. And maybe he is, but. There, he's making it to the point where, like, oh, we're so scared of him. We need to run. We need to. We can't be right. here. Or he'll strike. I'm thinking it's so insane. I'm thinking that Smith and Bradfield are working together, a hundred percent. This is Bradfield trying to build up his own alibi by telling his close associates how bad Smith is. So if the shit ever hits the fan, he could say it wasn't me. It was Smith. Look, all my friends know. That's what I think he's trying to do. Do I think he's doing it well? No, I think he sounds like a lunatic. I think that he feels like if anything blows back, that's his way. That's, that's his, his back way. door. Correct. Yeah. Okay. This is all building up to this one day. All of that craziness. So this is where we're going to get into our crime. The crime hasn't even been talked about yet. So it's Friday, June 22nd, 1979. Bradfield is going to ask Chris on this morning to take money out of a safe deposit box. Bradfield doesn't like keeping his money in bank accounts, so he has a lot of safe deposit boxes. He then goes to meet Shelly. He tells her that he will soon ask her to do many things for him, but he can only talk through coded communication. He then proceeds to give her the book that they will use to determine what the letters say. So like the code is like, it's like a number thing. So it's like if it's 417, it's the fourth line, 17th letter. Right. Like so that's the it's code. It's almost like the things you used to get in the cereal boxes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it does take a long time for him to explain this to Shelly, but he eventually tries to do it. In the meantime, Susan is going to place a call to her in-laws. She apparently was still really close with her in-laws. She wanted to talk to them about her son's baptism. Her in-laws and Ken were very religious and they asked her to baptize Michael. And although she was not religious, she wanted to make them all happy. So the baptism was scheduled for the following weekend. Now at this point, Karen, her daughter is 11, and Michael, her son, is 10. She wanted to give the details out, and she also needed to ask her former father-in-law a question about her trip to Allentown, which she would be making the next day. Susan 
and her children belong to an organization known as Parents Without Partners. Um, This exists to help out single parents so they can communicate with each other about difficulties they are having raising their children on their own while also giving the kids something fun to do. So for example, the following day, there was a big bowling trip planned, whereas the parents are going to be in a workshop, but the kids will be bowling. So there's something to do. That's nice. Yeah, it's really nice. However, Susan was worried because at the time in the United States, there was a gas shortage. So this is during the gas crisis. And she knew that it would take hours to stop somewhere and get gas, but she had a full tank. So she was asking her father-in-law, can I make it to Allentown and back and then the next day be able to wait on the gas line? Like, will I have enough gas? And he assured her that she would be fine. So she said they were ready for the trip. And they talked briefly about a father-son softball game that was scheduled for that afternoon. And she said, yes, Ken's going to be there. That evening, there was a father and son softball game that was scheduled by the Cub Scouts, which is adorable. And Michael was a part of the Cub Scouts. It was one of his favorite things to do. Ken is going to meet Susan and his children at the field. He's accompanied by his wife, Lynn. And before Ken could even speak to his ex-wife, Susan is going to drive off with Karen, leaving Michael at the field. Like, she leaves very abruptly. Ken noted this as being very strange. The two had a very amicable relationship. Now, even though he didn't approve of Susan's new boyfriend, and especially him being around the children. The game is cut short because of the rain, so Michael, Ken, and his wife go to the Cub Scout facility, where all the Cub Scouts are and their parents, so it's kind of like chaos in there. And Michael is playing with his friends in front of the room, and Ken and his wife are sitting in the chairs that are up against the wall. They see Susan walk in. She beckons Michael to come to her, and he runs to her, and the two leave. Ken thought this was very strange, so he decided he didn't want to wait anymore, so he left with his wife, Lynn. When Ken gets home, he gets a phone call from his son, who apologized for leaving so quickly, but he said he had to wash the floors before they left tomorrow for Allentown. And Ken assured his son that it was okay, but he found it really strange that Michael never had the chore of washing the floor before, so like, why this sudden urgency for it? And reports from the regional leader of Parents Without Partners say that soon after Michael's phone call to his father, Susan will call and apologize to them. She says she can't make it to the workshop, bowling match thingy in Allentown, because she has something personal to take care of. Some legal matters have come up that her and William Bradfield must attend to. Wow. Okay. So when police questioned the neighbors of Susan Rayner, They say that around 9 p.m. it started hailing, like hard. And she remembers this because her daughter, who sometimes babysat for the two Raynard children, ran outside and started collecting the hail that was unusually large. And they laughed and they played and they ran around the yard until about 9.30 p.m. when Susan called her children inside. She then remembers Susan and the children leaving abruptly in the car around 9.40 p.m. And she remembers it so well because she thought to herself, where would she be going so late in this horrible weather with the gas crisis? So like everyone was always, every time you heard a car, you're like, ooh, they must be going somewhere important because there was no gas. Yeah, it's a, that's a big deal. So I mean, she, she really remembers the time, which is good for us when we think back about this. On the same night, Bradford was expected to be at a dinner party in his apartment with Sue. They were supposed to be hosting a dinner for Vince, 
Bradford's son and his son's girlfriend. Um, they were all waiting for him to arrive. However, he never showed up until really, really late that night. And at this point, Sue was sleeping upstairs and Vince, Bradfield's son, and his girlfriend were watching a movie in Vince's downstairs apartment. Bradfield finally showed up. He was wet and he was a little unnerved. He barely acknowledged his son or his girlfriend. He told Vince to go wake up Sue and they need to leave immediately and head to Cape May. Because that was their weekend they were supposed to go to Cape May. They were supposed to have dinner and then leave. But he, it's now like super late at night and he's just showing up for the first time. And he's saying, let's go, let's go. We got to leave now. And his poor son, he's not even saying hello to. That's so strange. Yeah. And as Vince and Sue packed, Bradfield was running around in a frenzy. And he said that tonight Smith is going to kill Susan, that he had to get them out of town. He'd been driving around Susan's neighborhood, as he often did, to make sure Smith was not arriving to kill her. This time he saw Smith. And Bradfield claims that he was chasing Smith around with his car, but lost him because of the hailstorm. And they must leave now to create alibis for themselves. So in, a, in his own twisted way... He's making them think he's protecting them. Right, but... in. But quite the opposite's happening. There, he's kind of getting them involved. Yeah, like unknowingly, like getting them involved in like whatever's happening in the background. He's not thinking of them. He's thinking of an alibi for himself. Yeah, yeah. And having other people know that is what he thinks going to benefit him. So crazy, right? Bradfield, Vince, and they're going to pick up Chris and Sue. Drove through the night and arrived in Cape May early the next morning, the 23rd of June, 1979. While in Cape May, Bradfield demanded that they go to Mass twice a day to pray for Susan. He insisted that they save every single receipt they got for the weekend. He was furious when Chris forgot to keep a receipt for a cheeseburger he ordered. He also showed Vince and Chris dozens of letters sent between him and Susan. He told them that these letters needed to be destroyed because they linked him to Susan. All of Bradfield's companions said he was acting stranger than normal that weekend. Like when they went to the beach, he was just like not even on a towel, just like laying in the sands, like crucifixion pose, like not <laughs> speaking to anyone. Like they said he was so weird. Probably smoked all that pot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had to get rid of it really quick. <laughs> When the group returned to Pennsylvania, Bradfield called Smith's lawyer because Smith was due in court that Monday. So it's now Monday. As he was, because this was like his sentencing for the three felony charges. That was supposed to be Monday the 25th. Smith's lawyer confirmed that he was convicted and he was sentenced two to five years for the three felony charges for his offenses. My God. Yeah. So he was convicted and Bradfield rejoiced. Um, Smith was in prison and they saved Susan Raynard's life. Bradfield and Chris then got on a plane to head to New Mexico for their graduate school classes for the summer. And Rachel was going to meet them. She was driving the VW bug across the country for Bradfield's. Isn't that nice of her? Wow. That's dedication. Yeah. And then on the plane, Chris said that Bradfield is going to toast to um, saving Susan Rayner's life. Oh, he's such the hero. Yeah. Such a hero. 
The sentencing hearing for Jay Smith was very strange, too. The man who was out on bail was late for his court appearance on Monday. He said he was waiting for a friend to give him a ride that never showed up. However, when police later looked into this, they knew that Smith never asked a friend for a ride, and it was just another lie. At 2 a.m. Monday morning, a police officer was doing a routine check of the host Inn parking lot in Swatera Township. He reported a Plymouth Horizon with a hatchback open, and he checked the registration. It was registered to Susan G. Rayner of Ardmore. He checked with the hotel and discovered that there was no guest registered with that name. Before he could further investigate, he got a radio call for a fatal traffic accident, and he had to leave. However, that same officer had to return to the host inn because apparently a call came in around 5.20 a.m. to the county police and fire radio dispatch saying that there was a sick woman in a car at the host inn. The caller identified himself as Larry Brown and then quickly hung up the phone. Well, that's such an alias. It's not I even know. funny. Oh, right there, Larry Brown. Right. Like, come on, really? So this time, the police officer did open the hatchback, and in the luggage compartment of the car, he found the naked, beaten, and bruised body of Susan Rayner. Her body was covered in black and blues, and there were chain marks all over her back, and it was clear that she was dead. Investigator Joe Van Nort, who will later pass away of a heart attack before he could ever see justice for the crime that he worked so tirelessly to solve, and his partner, Jack Holtz, noticed right away that the dew patterns on the car show that someone was trying to wipe off their fingerprints. So, like, the way the dew was on the car in the morning, you know how it shows the pattern of wiping? Yeah. So it showed that someone tried to wipe above the driver's door, the driver's door handle. Like, all the places where you would touch your car were wiped down. And the rearview mirror was actually completely removed. In the car, this is what's found. Church and Cub Scout pamphlets, a set of playing cards, soda cans, empty hamburger wrappers, notes and to-do lists, a roadmap, hair tie, candy, a hairbrush, and three stuffed animals, a lion, a duck, and a monkey. However, there was a strange object that didn't fit in with the others. A large rubber dildo was found under the front seat. And beneath the body of Susan Rayner was a brand new blue comb, the insignia of the Cross of Lorraine, and a green plastic bag. It was while Susan's body was being taken in for an autopsy that Jay Smith finally showed up late for court. This is crazy. Yeah. The coroner took samples of her whole body, and he said that he remembers the woman being lost on a table. I mean, Susan Rayner is a very small woman. She's 5'2", and she weighed 100 pounds. He said she looked like a child. And in her hair and on her body, they found several red fibers. Um, They found two blue fibers, and tape residue was found in her hair and on her nose and mouth. It was clear that she had been chained up at one point. Um, At this point, um, no rigor had set in. But the body did suffer something called fixed lividity. Um, That means that Susan must have died in one position and was kept there for a certain amount of hours. 
But then when her body was dumped, it was in a different position and it was kept there for hours. So like blood settled in different parts of her body, meaning that the body was moved. The body was severely beaten and had abrasions on her back that were in the pattern of chains. The body was also checked for needle marks, but none were found. And this could be this could be because the body was so black and blue and cut up that it was impossible to detect. The coroner concluded that most likely she died Saturday night and the cause of death must have been asphyxiation um, due to lack of breathing because of the beating and that she had been subdued because she had large amounts of morphine in her system, which is why they were looking for the needle marks. You know what? They probably, there had to have been, well, I mean, I don't know, but she probably, like, uh, there was that one TV series that we used to watch where they used to, um, it was that dude that was the doctor, the medical examiner, and he had, like, obviously he was, like, on heroin, and he was looking for places to, like, poke himself. Oh, yeah. And he was yeah, poking so. himself in, like, the webbing of his fingers and his oh, hand yeah, and his feet. Oh, yeah, what was that called? I actually, it was the about neck. the neck, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that, um, there definitely was, but because her body was so beaten up, they just yeah, couldn't they just find couldn't write, it. Yeah. Van Nort and Holtz were not happy, and they wanted the body to be checked further by other coroners. They felt like, um... A uh, more experienced pathologist should better could better handle this case. The police officers did a fantastic job. Um, Ken Rayner was asked to come in and identify the body of his ex-wife. The cops wanted to talk to him because, after all, so he's the husband. And Ken was really upset. The police talked to him for two hours while they took him out for a coffee. Ken finally asked when he would be able to see his children. Were they at a neighbor's house? And the two detectives looks at each other. What children? So the police officers are a little concerned because they think, why didn't Ken Raynard start with the kids? Right? He knew they were with Susan. The detectives were also suspicious of him, and he didn't do himself any favors because he lied to his parents. When he called his parents, he said that Sue had been in a car accident and was dead. Like, he didn't come out and say she was murdered. So they were at first very suspicious of Ken, but obviously he gets cleared and they know that he didn't do it. Um, He's later going to say that he was just in shock and he just assumed that the kids were already being cared for because the police didn't ask him about them. Police then are going to check out the Raynard house. They took pictures of everything and fingerprinted every surface they could. It was evident from the house that the single mother and her children did not leave planning to be gone for a long time they took nothing with them and they left abruptly there was even still food and milk on the kitchen table the investigators then got a phone call from a woman named sharon lee who was a colleague of susan's and bradfield's she was furious with william bradfield susan had confided in her about the wedding plans and england although she was not a fan of bill she was happy for her friend When Sharon called Bradfield in New Mexico to send her condolences about the untimely death of his fiancée, he just said, isn't that a shame? I thought I'd just see her again in September like I always did, and now she won't be there. Lee was enraged. What was he talking about? Weren't they supposed to be married in a few weeks? But Bradfield didn't know that Susan told anyone about that. Bradfield further infuriated her by saying that he heard Susan was supposed to be meeting a friend named Don Jones in Harrisburg. He's really good at picking these names. Larry Brown, Don Jones. (laughs) 
How did Bill know that Susan was supposed to be meeting someone if he wasn't supposed to see her again until September? It didn't even make any sense. Bradfield even asked Lee how old Susan's children were. She knew that he was over that house more than he was letting on and that he knew how old her children were. He bought them gifts and she sp- he spent so many nights sleeping over. Right, with the family. Right. Yeah. So Lee was so upset that she's going to call police and, and let them know what was going down. So as investigators look into William Bradfield's, they see it all. The life insurance policy, the faculty room fights with Sue Myers, and they decide to pay a visit to Sue. When they got to Sue's apartment, Vince was there. They lied to police. They said they had left for Cape May at 4 p.m. on Friday. And Susan most likely was going to get herself killed sooner or later because she was sex crazed. They told police that Bradfield told them Susan often met up with a kinky, educated black man named Alex. What? I know. Like, where does he come up with this shit? Where does he... Exactly. I think they said that um, people that talked about Bradfield later reflecting that it was his crazy, weird details that made his lies seem so real. And he's quick on his feet, too. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I mean, he could recover from anything pretty much when people call him out on his BS. Exactly. So the investigators left not knowing what to think. But something wasn't right. Something wasn't right at the police station either. Because two major mistakes had been made. First, due to lack of funding for supplies, the station reused their 911 tapes. And the Larry Brown call had been taped over. Oh, man. I know. Then there was a miscommunication at the funeral home. Van Nort told the mortician not to cremate the body until he had a more experienced pathologist come in to run tests and do a second autopsy. Susan's brother, who thought the police were finished with the body, asked for the cremation. Somehow messages got mixed up and the body was cremated before a pathologist could do a second autopsy. That's insane. So that's all the physical evidence. Talk about, talk about timing, right? Yeah. As police did their investigation, they began to call Bradfield's intimates in. And the, this is when the press takes on this name. The press had a field day with this one. Not only did they have a principal who was arrested under strange circumstances, a teacher found murdered, and another teacher suspected of the crime, that teacher had known connections with the principal. As Bradfield tried to be Smith's alibi in his trial and had his group of followers. So, like, this was just, like, the media's dream. They had a field day with this. The detectives went to question Bradfield in Santa Fe. But he was very tight-lipped, except for saying that Susan was sex-crazed and that he was trying to give her advice to give up that lifestyle. But the police weren't buying it. It was during this time that he asked Chris to disassemble a shotgun and dispose of it and its silencer. He also asked him to get rid of a typewriter that he had typed things to Susan on. He also asked another student in the grad school course who was a former student of his. He seems to like have people follow him everywhere he goes. Um, So this guy's name was Jeff. So he asked Jeff to hide the typewriter because Chris wouldn't do it. Because Chris is starting to be like, wow, there's some stuff going on that I don't want to be involved with. So Jeff is going to hide the typewriter for Bradfield. 
And he also asks him to burn all the documents that he has referring to Susan in his fireplace. And Jeff does this. Ken was beside himself about the missing children. He did everything he could. He wrote letters to the FBI, his congressman, his senator, and eventually he gets the FBI involved in the investigation. Under the pretenses that there was a possibility that the children were being held for ransom, because that's like the only way the FBI could step in at that point, because it's before they did missing children all the time. During this time, Stephanie, Jay's wife, is going to release her diary to the press. This only makes the story get crazier. In her diary, Stephanie reveals that Jay is sick and disturbed, that he dresses up in the devil's costume, and she makes notes of all the depraved things she found in the basement. Before that, that was all just police evidence. Like, people didn't know really what was found in the basement, but she's going to give it out. She talks about his inclination towards bestiality and homosexuality. However, Stephanie can't confirm or deny anything because shortly after this, she's going to succumb to her cancer on August 12th, 1979. And before you know it, there is new media reports out there. Um, Now there's a satanic death cult at Upper Marion High School. And when Susan Raynert found out about it, she had to be killed. Now, even though Bradfield is mentioned more in the police reports throughout the investigation, the press is going to stick to the involvement of Jay Smith because it's more sensational. Right. right? It, Jay, it makes for bigger headlines as correct. well. Correct. Jay Smith is a part of this satanic cult. They were doing rituals in the high school. William Bradford and his group, his cult, were a part of it. And Susan found out about it and she had to be murdered. Um, the other stories were that Susan was involved in uh, a bizarre affair with Smith and Bradfield, and they did weird sex acts together, and she died during a sex act. Like, it was every crazy headline that could be out there was released. So the police are going to get a break in the case, though. Vince, a deeply religious man, cannot take any more of this. He's being questioned by police, and the press are hounding him. He finally has time to reflect on the stories that Bradfield told him, and he's realizing they're a little crazy. He makes a confession to his priest, and it's funny because he he still believes that Bradfield is innocent. He says, he, he confesses to his priest everything about Jay Smith, and he said, I don't know why Bradfield won't just come out and tell the police that it was Smith. Like, that's what everyone's thinking. Like, no one thinks they did anything wrong because they think that Smith did it. Right, because they've all been brainwashed by by uh, Bradfield to think that he had no involvement in it. Well, that he didn't directly do anything wrong and that it was all Smith. Right, that he was trying to save her. Right, yeah. Which, if you wanted to save someone from this so-called hitman, you would just call the cops like every other fucking normal person. But, yes. I digress. <laughs> You're correct. His priest is going to convince him that he's done nothing wrong, but be faithful to a a fellow friend. And he should go to police and tell him what's happening so they can figure out what's going on. Like, have faith in the police, is what he's saying. Vince agrees, and when he gets into a room with Van Nort, Holtz, and the FBI, he spills it. (laughs) Like, he gives them a hundred hours of tape. A hundred hours? A hundred hours. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then, this is a little comical, Van Nort finally asks him, like, 
do you, would you want to wear a wire? And he goes, I can't. Bill's a hugger. <laughs> like, that was his response. <laughs> that is funny. Um, as Vince and Bradfield are headed to the lawyer next week, they are going to meet Chris and Sue. As they're driving, Vince is going to confess to Bradfield that he went to the police and he should too. And he pleads with his friend, you didn't do anything wrong, Bill. You were trying to help Susan. I told them about Smith being a hitman for the mafia. Bradfield went nuts. He gets out of the car. He starts walking away. And then he turns around and he screams, you betrayed me. You signed a death warrant for all of us. The mob will be after us. And Vince doesn't know what to do, so he just, like, drives away. Bradfield eventually gets to a lawyer's office and he tells his lawyer he needs a word alone with Chris and Sue. And Vince goes off and he says, no, Bradfield goes off and he said, Vince told on us. Vince told the cops everything. So Sue and Chris go, well, okay, then is it our problem solved? Like they right. didn't get it. No, because they were all oblivious because of the 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 all the bullshit being spewed like right. it, it was like he made i guess i guess a simple like the simple situation that much more complicated just to cover his tracks to give himself an alibi right and like, then he gets mad at everyone for not understanding his craziness right like because he can't just come out and say what he's doing obviously right because it's, it's illegal illegal so as the police are slowly building their case to present to the grand jury Bradfield, Sue Myers, and Vince Valentis start a new school year. Only they're not allowed to teach. They're not allowed a, they're not allowed near a classroom. So they had to do administrative work in the basement of the school. Now this is because they haven't been convicted of anything. So the school board can't fire them until they've been convicted. Right. Um and then even if they're not convicted, they can fire them, but it just looks bad for the school board to do it before a trial takes place. Chris was not asked to return to his position as a substitute teacher, so he began working construction. One day in particular, Vince recalls later during his testimony in court that Bradfield referred to Vince as Judas. And after one too many bizarre phone calls late at night from Bradfield, Vince went crazy. He slammed his fist down and said, why don't you just tell on Smith? You didn't do anything wrong. Bradfield then apparently went into a frenzy in which he said, well, if you think I did the crime, well, okay, let me lay it out for you. I gave the kids to Smith. So he just come out, he just comes out and says. He just said, I get, but he said it like under the guise of, oh, well, you think I did it? Well, this is what I did. Gave the kids to Smith. Right, right. So then Vince storms out. Like, because they were, like, having a fight. But then, like, as Vince is reflecting on it, he's like, is that what happens? Right. So he doesn't know. We still don't know. So crazy. It it is crazy. And so something that I mentioned there really quick, but Bradfield was making bizarre phone calls to Vince, like, at all hours of the night. Like, he would call him, be like, you betrayed me. How could you do that? And then, like, he would make another phone call, and his, like, voice would sound like an old woman. And he would ask him the same thing. He said it was very strange. Like, he just gave these weird phone calls from Bradfield. I think the dude was just feeling the pressure, and he was about to pop. Yeah. Police now are going to look a little bit more intently at Smith after Vince tells them this. And they visit his former house in King of Prussia. 
because now he's obviously moved out because his new house is in the county jail. And he asked the current owner to take samples of the rugs. And interestingly enough, the upstairs carpet in the former Smith household was red. The new owner told police that she had to replace the rug downstairs in the basement because it was soaking wet. She guessed the previous owner, Jay Smith, must have tried to clean it, but it was just so wet that on Monday, June 25th, when he moved out, she just threw away the rug. So the day of his court hearing, the rug was soaking wet the weekend after the murder of Sue, Susan. So he was just, so it seems you can make an educated guess that he was trying to clean up before he was tried. Correct. But before he had to leave the house because he was going to be found guilty of the other crimes. But the owner of the house kept the padding underneath the carpet. So the police asked to take samples of the red carpet upstairs and to vacuum out the padding below. That's smart. So, and she completely consented. When the investigators are going to question Jay Smith, he tells them that on Friday, he was at the hospital for most of the day with his wife. When the FBI follows up on this alibi, the staff said they know who he is, but they didn't see him on that day. Uh, And they ask everyone from like the custodians, the people who serve food, the nurses, the doctors. Um, When Smith was asked about Bradfield, he said that they were colleagues and nothing more. He did add that he thought there was a homosexual nature to the friendship of Bradfield and Chris and Vince. The police were beginning to suspect the same thing. As most of the women that were associated with Bradfield, they were interviewed and they confessed that he wasn't much for having sex but for cuddling so he was kind of telling the truth like he's not this like great lover like he cuddled with them that is interesting right so sue is going to begin to think the same thing when she finds a letter addressed to william bradfield from his friend tom which she knows he had been in contact with and friends with since childhood the letter states that tom is what he considers married to another man, but he will never know passion and love like he did when he was with Bradfield. Oh, man, the layers, the layers. I know. So this is a last straw for Sue. She called a locksmith, and Bradfield was never allowed in the apartment again, and she kept all of his stuff. Good for her. I mean, hey, if there was anything good there, good for her. Well, think about all the incriminating stuff. Well, that, that's actually, yeah, that's true. By now, this is, it was Christmas time, 1979. And Ken Rayner was, he was a mess. He developed a sleeping disorder. And when he did sleep, he had reoccurring nightmares. He just wanted his children back, or at least to know where they were and what happened to them. Law enforcement, though, were making some breakthroughs with the investigation into Susan's death. But... They had no such luck when it came to finding 11-year-old Karen and 10-year-old Michael. In the spring of 1980, when the ground and lakes unfroze, the police continued their search. Lakes and bodies of water were searched, landfills were dug up, but no bodies were ever found. 
The FBI, however, using new technology, were able to determine that the chain link impressions left on Susan's body were from the same type of chains that were photographed in the basement of Smith's house when the police held their initial search. Which, right there, tells you that they had to have been working together. Correct. Or had the ability to access all his weird shit in the basement. Right, right. Some, there, there had to be some sort of affiliation or some type of agreement, whether they were helping each other or he just had access to certain things or something like that. Correct, because what's further going to back this up is that the red carpet samples were a match for the fibers on Susan's body. And a single hair that was found in the padding from the basement was an 84% microscopic match for Susan's hair. So, I get what you're saying. She told the Parents Without Partners, I'm, do- I'm handling legal stuff with Bradfield. So we know she was with Bradfield that night, but somehow chains from J. Smith's basement were used as impressions on her back. Right, and those same chains were photographed when the police did their search in the basement. Unless Jay Smith took those chains from Smith's house and used them himself and did that to frame Smith. You know what? That's pretty smart. Okay, I like that. I mean, it, it could have been. And that's why he's building up this whole mafiosa thing. But why would he go out of his way to you know, have an alibi for him, for Smith, you know, say that he was here and, you know... Th- right. He has a little too much interest in Smith. Too much. Backing up It's one thing daughters. to, like, have it, like, use him as, like, a backdoor to get out of, you know, a crime. But he was helping him in the beginning of all this. Great. Right. Right. And another thing's going to back up what you're saying right now is in searching prison letters sent by Smith to his wife, they find a correspondence in which Smith asks his wife to get rid of all the carpeting in the house or at least clean it really well. Yeah, the two of them are definitely... Uh, in cahoots. In cahoots, oh yeah. The police get another break when Bill Bradford tried to probate the estate of Susan Raynard to get the money that he felt he was owed. Ken Raynard and Susan's brother are going to contest this. This means that Bill Bradford had to take the stand and lucky for the police, he perjured himself. He states that he was helping guide Susan through a difficult time and that in no way did they have an intimate relationship. He claimed he never spent the night at her house and did not know the kids well, and he had absolutely no idea why he was the beneficiary of all this money. But the police knew he was lying. They had neighbors that would testify to the fact that Bradfield's bug was always outside of the house, sometimes all night. They had an autograph book of Karen's in which Bradfield signed his name. He wrote a message to her in Greek and signed it, Your Friend Bill. So he definitely knew these kids. Yeah. Also, let's just say for kind of put some pieces together. Mm -hmm. There's no way that those kids, if they were indeed alive, let's say in the car after, you know, he put the body of their mother in, in the back... That they let's say they didn't see her, the mother die. Let's just say there's no way they would just go go with a stranger that had no previous time spent their interaction with them, and right. it would have been hard for him to rein in. Even though they're children, it would have been hard to rein in two kids without anybody seeing, 
without anybody like you know being a little suspicious to that so no it's true that doesn't make any sense the other thing that he also lied about was and the police know this from vince was that bradfield told his intimates that that crazy woman made me the benefactor of all of her money and said that i was to take care of her children if anything happens to her she is insane so Bill saying that he didn't know he was the benefactor was a lie. He did know. He did know. Another break comes in for police, whose task force is now significantly smaller, when Sherry Smith, Jay Smith's younger daughter, her car is found, abandoned. When it is searched, they find a small green pin that just has a simple letter, P. It's a small green P. When the police ask all of those involved in the case, it is one of Susan's friends that says, that looks like the pin that Karen used to wear all the time. It was true. On a field trip to the Pennsylvania Museum of Art, the pin was given to all the students to show that they had been paid admission. And security at the museum had eight different colored P's. So on certain days, they would give certain colors out, like they would constantly rotate it. And green was the color that they got on their field trip day. A student in Karen's class gave his pin to the police, and it, in fact, was a match. So Karen's pin was found underneath the seat of Jay Smith's daughter's abandoned car. These two families have, there's so much, Yeah. like, there should never be so much, like, coincidence and, and weird things that are happening between two families unless, like, Almost like you like like if you live together, but they don't. Correct. So it's like it's just so weird how all this shit like comes out. Right. Now at this point, the grand jury hearing was set up for September to get access to all of Bradfield's financial and phone records. He gives the only intimates that he had left, Chris and Shelley, a script of what to say during the grand jury hearing. A long, detailed script, and all of it is lies. And they had to practice saying these things with him over and over again but they're so confused and this just completely pushes chris over the edge and he reaches out to law enforcement he's not ready to go to jail for bradfield chris also gives them about a hundred hours of confession to police and fbi now chris's confessions are a little bit more interesting because bradfield seemed to trust chris more than he did vince and he allowed chris to do more illegal activities with him like cover up all of Jay Smith's weird things, like his guns, his acid, all of those weird things that he found. So Chris also is going to give them a bizarre tale about prom. So one night, Bradfield is going to rush home, and he says, Smith's going to do it tonight. He's going to kill Susan Raynard. We have to stop him. So they jump in the car, and they say, Bradfield says, he gave me one clue about tonight. I'm going to be dressed up, but I'm never going to walk through the door. And that night was the senior prom. So he said, oh my God, he's going to kill Susan Raynard at the prom. So they rush to the prom and like Jay Smith isn't even there. And it, it was just like, Chris was like, what the hell is going on? Right. And with him, Bradfield had a gun and he fired it up in the air three times to say, oh, we just have to make sure the gun works so we can stop Smith if he tries to kill Susan. <sighs> it's just like, what is going on in this guy's head? This, 
I, I don't even know. He's just crazy. So Chris is going to tell stories like this to police. And they're just like, what is happening? But they're also like, yes, tell us more. Yeah, they want to know. They want to <laughs> get this guy for everything. Oh, and not to mention, um, he had all of the letters between Susan Rayner and Bradfield and anything else Sue gave him. Because Chris told Sue, I'm going to the FBI. I'm going to tell them what's going on. So Sue goes, oh, don't forget all of these things, and gave him every letter that she had that William Bradford wrote. Go Sue. Sue. So in these letters, they find something pretty fascinating. It's a letter from Jay Smith to William Bradfield, telling him how to construct an alibi for him the night of the Sears robbery. So So that just shows you that they did talk, they did know, and that there was more than just a Sears robbery that they knew about with each other. That they were trying to cover up Absolutely. Together. Correct. And, in fact, in this letter, they talked about how, um, Jay Smith talked about how the teacher whose summer house there was in Ocean City, New Jersey. Probably never existed, right? Well, no, he did. Okay. But they said he could be hard to convince, like, oh, yeah, remember when I left that note on your door? Like, he may say, no, I don't remember. But he said if he does do that, we can blackmail him with something that happened between him and the superintendent a few years ago. So, like, they were planning on creating this alibi, and if the guy didn't go with it, blackmailing him. So this letter, to solidify things even further, had Chris, Suze, Jay Smith, and William Bradfield's fingerprints on it. So the two men definitely wrote these letters to each other. Oh, yeah. So the police asked, um, do you have anything else? And Chris was like, oh, yeah, I have so much stuff. Bradfield told me to hide all of this stuff for Jay Smith. And he gave police chains, locks, acid, and a pistol. And the chains matched the chains. On her body. That were impressed on her body. Bradfield, but there was no evidence found on them. Bradfield is finally arrested in May of 1981, but not for murder yet. He's charged with the theft. He's charged with theft by deception, fraudulent conversion, and Shelley, his girlfriend, is also arrested as an accomplice, as she is the only one yet to turn on Bradfield. However, as soon as this happens, she does. Bradfield is found guilty of both charges, and the entire courtroom erupts into applause. So now Bradfield and Smith are in prison. And of course, what happens? They talk. Jay Smith apparently had told his cellmate about the murders, but when the man got out of prison and was convinced to wear a wire by law enforcement, Jay Smith never confessed again. However, the, however Bradfield is going to tell a friend in prison about the murders as well. He says, none of this was meant for the kids, only Susan but we couldn't leave loose ends. The man contacted police because he had children and he couldn't imagine the pain Ken Rayner was in. I mean, this guy was in for like robbery. So he was like, I couldn't imagine my children being taken away and, and killed and not know. So in 1983, out on parole, William Bradfield is finally arrested for murder. His cellmate, and intimates are going to testify against him, as does Susan's therapist, who confirms that their relationship did exist for a very long time. 
as does Sharon Lee, the colleague of both of the both Bradfield and Susan Rayner. Although the evidence is circumstantial, Bradfield is sent to prison to serve three life sentences for Susan and her children. Bradfield is going to die in prison in 1998. Good. But now we have Jay Smith. Mm. And in 1986, Smith was tried for the murder of the Raynert family. Investigators were confident that Bradfield was not working alone. The jury accepted the prosecution's theory that Smith had killed Susan. Raynert and her two children were in his basement at some point, and he was sentenced to death in 1986. The pivotal testimony came from two of Bradfield's intimates, who said that Smith told them that he was going to kill Susan. But we know that's not true. Right. Chris and Vince didn't hear it from Smith. They heard it from Bradfield. Bradford. Yeah, Bradfield, yep. The prosecutor said his motive had been to share the life insurance. I'm also thinking that maybe there was, this is just me, but maybe a sexual thing between Smith and Bradfield. A type of relationship. Uh, I, I actually, usually I my theory either differs from yours, maybe slightly or a lot. I actually want to say in this case, it's... I'm on the same page with you here. Yeah. I definitely do. I mean, there's so many little um, glimpses that we get. Right. Um, whether it's from the letters or, you know, it, it, it's also odd when you are putting your head out, like your neck out, I'm sorry. Yeah. Your neck out for someone who... You, you seemingly have no connection yeah. to whatsoever. It doesn't make sense to do that unless there was other feelings there. Now, I'm not saying they have to be sexual feelings, but... Well, it may not be that they have sexual... They either have sexual feelings towards each other or the same sexual feelings when it comes to, like, homosexuality or bestiality. Or they may have commonalities in their sexual attractions. Yeah. And that's Vers- what brought them together. Right. Right. Like, their deviancy is the yes. same. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Well, in 1992, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court is going to overturn Smith's conviction. No way. Yes. On the ground that the judge had erred by allowing hearsay evidence from Bradfield's friends. They heard all of this from Bradfield, not from Smith. The judge should have never allowed the testimony of Chris and Vince. Okay. I mean, I could could see that, but... And... The high court also found fault with the prosecution for withholding evidence from the defense. There was, a, there was some sand found on Susan Rayner during the autopsy of her body. Sand that could have come from the beach that Bradfield and his friends claimed to have visited. What a twist. That is a twist. That is a twist. Did the, fr- Did the friends help him do it? Right? I mean, yeah. that's what... That's, what's, that's what's I, being claimed. I just don't think so. I think that someone would have cracked. I think they cracked to the best hundreds of hours of confession tape. And I they didn't say that. I would want to sit there that. for more than an hour if I had to. I'm just, I just think that it would have come out if it was the friends. I think that it was Smith and but Bradfield what, alone. But someone on the other side would, would say, yeah, but look at... All the times that he was able to coerce them to do something, correct? Um, or brain, you know, they he was they were brainwashed from him. Um, they had this like uh, like this amazing fucking loyalty to him. So it, 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 I guess you can go either way with it. But for me, I really think that 
I just, him and Smith really had something going on, whether right. it was something that they both enjoyed or whether it was sexual or, you I, know. I just think that all of the evidence that proves that Smith and Bradfield work together is a lot more compelling than a grain of sand, which could have been from anywhere. I mean, they, she has two young kids. They probably went to beaches all the time. So it could have been like I still have sand from this summer in my car. Right, I understand what you're saying. So I think that a little grain of sand doesn't place all that doubt in my head. I think all of the evidence that shows a connection between Smith and Bradfield is more compelling. That's what I think. I mean, is it a crazy twist? Could it be possible? Maybe, but I think the evidence points more the other way. So you're saying, so your final thought is like, oh, well, I, well, better yet. Well, first off, before we do our little final thing here. Um, so are you saying that because there's so many people involved. Someone that, would have said that something. That someone would have said something because no one, not like 100 people, what was it, five people here? Think about how quick they all turned when they thought that they were right. going to get in trouble. Well, what I'm saying is, think about it, right? So are you saying five people to stay to the same, like stick to the same story is hard? And that's why it's not... Especially when they're all confessing things. Right, right. Like, if they were all stayed tight-lipped, I'd be like, okay, maybe. But they're all over the place talking to police and FBI. So giving things away, wouldn't they be scared about incriminating themselves? Easily, too. So that's why I just don't think that they were involved. I think they innocently thought, I didn't do anything wrong, here's everything. Right. That's what I think those people did. Okay. So final... Well, let's get back to the overturning of the conviction okay the prior procedure that took place so smith's trial the ruling was he couldn't have another trial but because of what the supreme court deemed outrageous behavior by prosecutors the justices said that another trial would amount to placing smith in double jeopardy can't be tried for the same thing twice before the smith ruling double jeopardy which prevents a new prosecution, was found to exist only when defendants were acquitted or when prosecutors had deliberately provoked mistrial. So this was actually a pretty monumental case that took place with Jay Smith because for the first time, it's someone who was found guilty of a murder and then double jeopardy saved them. Usually it's someone's found innocent and then double jeopardy saves them. Right. So it's the first time that ever happened in the United States. So Smith walked out of prison a free man. No justice for Susan Rayner. No justice for the four people that still lie missing in the wake of this mess. Karen and Michael Rayner and Smith's daughter Stephanie and her husband Edward. Right. We, we still don't, don't know, what, know happened what happened. Jay Smith will die peacefully in his home in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, at the age of 80 in 2009. And the only piece of evidence that investigators can hold on to is a picture that was found in the cell of William Bradfield after his death. It is a picture of a stone in the middle of the woods, surrounded by leaves. The stone actually looks like a hooded figure, and police wonder if this is the spot where Karen and Michael are laid to rest. That's creepy. Yeah. Wow. So that might be where the kids are buried. But I definitely... I think that it's unfortunate that the decision was overturned because of mistakes by prosecution and judges, but I think that Smith and Bradfield did it. I just have one question, you know, that I that's that I don't think we found unless you found it didn't tell me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but if he was military, 
couldn't he also be tried? Um, there were no, were they any there attempts There is to a make... case where that did happen, where someone was found innocent in the court of law, and then he was tried in military court and found guilty. That's a great case that we should definitely cover in the future. But he was in the Army Reserve, so it was a little different. Is it, though? I believe so. Because, I'm, I mean, because if he... I think I it know also that he can be tried again in our dif- court system. But... The difference is, is that like I guess he wasn't on an active duty. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe there's something we don't know about that. We'd have to look. Or into it. or maybe it just wasn't pursued. Because oh no, I guess because the double jeopardy thing. No, but I believe. Well, actually, this is a good question. I, I don't know. I, I think I'm gonna have to look into. We that. have to look into this because I, I think, think that even m- if it's double jeopardy, that he's still allowed to be tried. But I think because there was such problems. And it was so obvious that what was done by the court was wrong and that he had been convicted, like he'd been sentenced to the death penalty. Right. And then it had been overturned that I think nobody wanted to touch it. That could be. You know what I mean? And yeah, it was all be. circumstantial evidence. Right. They didn't really Whereas have the other case that you're thinking about, there was more physical evidence. Right. Okay. So I don't think they wanted to touch it, if they could have at all. That is our crazy, twisted story from the mainline murders in pennsylvania and we know it's been a long long episode and if any of you are still hanging in there we just have a a short announcement about our patreon um we're giving away stickers to anyone who is donating to us on patreon to thank you so much for all the support you give us there are a few of you who didn't email us your addresses so we could send the stickers to you so I'd send an email out to those Patreons. So if you check your email, just respond to us and let us know what your address is. Those of you that did give us your addresses, we already sent the stickers out and we can't wait for you to get them and tell us what you think. And I think it, you're going to love them. Yeah. I just randomly ordered them one night after a few glasses of wine and I decided, let's give them out. <laughs> and then... Um... The next thing I realize is that I'm walking around the house and stickers of our podcast are just like placed in random places <laughs> or on certain objects. So you I, ordered, I ordered a lot of stickers. So if anyone um, wants to join Patreon and help us out and give us anything they could, whether it's a dollar or two dollars, it doesn't matter. Everything's appreciated. You could visit uh, patreon.com slash true crime couple and I'll send you a sticker. We'll send you a sticker. We'll send you a sticker. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John. It's okay. Okay, thank you so much. And if you liked what you heard and you haven't given us an iTunes review yet, you can definitely send one out. We'd appreciate it. All right, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.